And welcome to another edition of Book Talk. I'm Stephen Ussery, and I'm happy to welcome Connor Town O'Neill to the program today. Connor's writing has appeared in New York Magazine, Vulture, Slate, and The Village Voice. Currently, O'Neill teaches at Auburn University and with the Alabama Prison Arts and Education Project. Today, we'll be talking about his debut book, Down Along with That Devil's Bones, A Reckoning with Monuments, Memory, and the Legacy of White Supremacy, which is published by Algonquin Books. Connor, how did a bust of Confederate General Nathan Bedford Forrest come to Selma, Alabama, a town that's currently 80% African American? Well, it showed up in the year 2000, and that year is significant because it was the year that the city elected its first black mayor, which in and of itself was a tremendous thing, a cause for celebration, long-held hopes realized. When James Perkins Jr. was elected the night of the election, people celebrating crossed over the Edmund Pettus Bridge, which has this symbolic meaning in the city, of course, going back to the civil rights era. And then the weekend after his inauguration in 2000, this bronze bust of, of Nathan Bedford Forrest goes up on city property. Now, it's hard to say that that's a direct reaction to the election because, well, it takes a while to make a bronze bust of a a figure. So it's not like they scrambled into action uh, in the election, but it was clearly a a retaliatory symbolic gesture. It was clear that the, the outgoing mayor, Joseph Smitherman, who had been mayor since 1965, the year of the, the voting rights campaign in Selma, when demonstrators were attacked on the Edmund Pettus Bridge. It became one of his last decisions in in office. He was the mayor for 35 years. And in his last year, he approves the request by a neo-Confederate group in town to put up a statue of Nathan Bedford Forrest, a slave trader, an accused war criminal, the first grand wizard of the Klan. While it's difficult to say it's a direct reaction to the election of the city's first black mayor, the timing certainly makes it questionable. And is, as you say, to do that in a city that is 80% black, it It makes it clear who the attended audience is for a bust like that. The new millennium, of course, is the right time to celebrate someone who's been dead for 123 years and was a slave trader. If you go to Selma, you'll realize that people are still interested in fighting the Civil War. One of the city's slogans is from civil war to civil rights and beyond. Selma's civil war history is that one of the last battles of the war was fought there, and it was a a Confederate arsenal during the war. And then, of course, it stages the voting rights campaign in 1965 at the sort of climax of, of the civil rights movement 100 years later. So it has this civil war history, civil rights history, and then the beyond. Although, as one activist pointed out to me, they've never gotten to the beyond. The questions of the Civil War, which are essentially the same questions of the civil rights movement, if a city like Selma or really the United States of America as a whole can move past its its racial hierarchy and its origins as a slave society, if it can move past that history and transform itself into a multiracial democracy. That was the question of the Civil War. It's a question of the civil rights movement. And I think You know, recent events have only pointed up even clearer the fact that we're still uh, struggling to get beyond those questions. And there's a refrain that goes throughout the book, same war, same general. That's right. Yeah. When I spoke to Mayor Perkins, he told me that that statue going up weekend after his election was a pronouncement of war. Uh, When I asked him to elaborate on that, he said that, you know, these same tensions, these same hostilities have still, you know, 150 years on are still brewing and that, you know, we're still fighting the same war with this same general, Nathan Bedford Forrest. How has the city fared since the 1965 Bloody Sunday March? 
it's been tough. The city's main sort of economic engine for a long time was that there was a an Air Force base in the city. That base closed in the late 1970s and had a massive economic toll on the city when it left. It was, you know, generated tens of millions of dollars for the city, countless jobs, drawing people to the city. It had a particularly nasty school desegregation in the late 80s, fights over the renewing of the contract of the, the first black superintendent of the school system there and protests surrounding his being fired led hundreds of white families to pull their children out of the school. Nearly overnight, the school system uh, resegregated. And of course, that white flight then, you know, sort of compounds the tax revenue issues that the city was already experiencing. So yeah, it's been hard. I mean, I think in, in a lot of ways, Selma faces the problems that any small city in America faces, yeah. outsourcing, a lack of a good union factory jobs, you know, the sort of big box, strip mall, highway bypass, <laughs> drawing people out of downtown. So in some ways, it's not that dissimilar from a small city anywhere else in the country, but it is compounded by the fact that Selma exists in the national imagination as, you know, this kind of backwater of racist violence and civil rights triumph, sort of more symbolic than it is real for a lot of people. It's sort of like the Charlottesville has maybe taken on that mantle in a little bit in recent years. But Selma's not a university town. As one lawyer in town observed to me when I was interviewing him, you know, politicians want to come and, and kiss the Blarney Stone, which is to say they want to come every March and honor the anniversary of Bloody Sunday, but they don't want to come and build a factory here. The hard times that people are experiencing there economically is, is, is a real issue there. Somewhere near 30% of people who live in Selma are, are living below the poverty line. There is a similarity between Selma and Memphis in that both cities are majority African-American, but the white people still want to control the cultural history and memory of those places. Yeah, that's right. And I think, uh, you know, to further that similarity, that means sort of controlling the narrative of how we think about the Civil War or how we think about the Confederacy or how we think about the legacy of slavery and how it continues to shape our present, whether that be housing, the racial wealth gap, opportunities in schools or access to health care. The concept of white supremacy is something that you not only lay at the feet of white Southerners, but you also consider through the course of the book on how your relationship with being white and white supremacy has affected the country and African-Americans. That's right. You know, it's convenient for a, a white Northerner to think that they're somehow exempted from Civil War history or from the consequences of, you know, building a country and an economy on a system of slavery. And that was certainly how I felt growing up. Robert Penn Warren calls it the treasury of virtue, sort of derisively describing a, the Northerners' sense that because they're affiliated with the Union Army and the emancipating army, that, that somehow they have this unimpeachable goodness that they can claim. It, it was a bit inchoate maybe, but I certainly felt some version of that growing up. And really it wasn't until I dug into this project that I came to see that even though you know I had moved to the South and I was encountering this history through the lens of infamous Confederate general, what I was finding was how much the North was invested in slavery to all of the instruments of capitalism that have been developed by banks in New York and through the, you know, the factories in, in New England, just how much of a stake in the, in the profits of slavery that Northerners had and, and how unwilling they were to let that go, a real debate about whether Northerners would support emancipation. 
So coming at that civil war history made it clear to me that, you know, I, I had a stake in this too. I was implicated just as much. And then sort of tracing that history into the present, looking at things like who was eligible for FHA loans in the middle of the 20th century or the GI Bill or how schools were unequally funded or integrated or not integrated. Looking at these later battles that I call a sort of cold civil war. It's not a military conflict, but there are these debates in other aspects of our society where we're trying to figure out if if we really can be equal and, and, and get past the, this racial hierarchy. And, and really, if you look at how mortgages work, how schools are, are districted and zoned and funded, we really haven't. Break Those opportunities still break down along racial lines. And so that was cause for me uh, to do some real self-reflection and realizing just how much race had shaped my life from how my parents bought their house and that's where I went to school, how that school was funded, how I was seen and understood by my teachers, by police officers, how my student loans for college were co-signed and the assets that backed them. I mean, all of this stuff is, is shaped in some ways, whether we like it or not, whether we asked for it or not, by the fact that in the, the sort of psychotic <laughs> social construction of race in this country, I'm seen as white and thus reap these benefits. So yeah, you know, I, I came to it thinking I would do a sort of third person objective reporting project, you know, thinking, because I can be objective and I don't have a stake in this. I'm not a Southerner, but really to really honestly interrogate the consequences of this history, I realized that I was going to have to interrogate myself too. Now you grew up not too terribly far from Gettysburg. Do you think that growing up there in Southern Pennsylvania, that you probably had more of a sense of the Civil War than people that had grown up further North or further out West in the Midwest? I think that might be true for some people that I grew up with, but you know, I just wasn't really much of a military buff growing up. Some of the people that I talked to that are really pro-Forrest or want, you know, wanted to protect his monuments pointed out that was shaping my point of view in the debate that, you know, because I didn't come from a military heritage that I couldn't understand what Forrest meant. But I don't I don't necessarily know that that's the case. Even though I wasn't, you know, tromping through Civil War battlefields growing up, I was more interested in the sorts of causes and consequences of the war, you know, more Gettysburg Address than Pickett's Charge, that so much hung in the balance of the Civil War. I think that, you know, maybe we tend to overemphasize the battles, the tactics, the cavalry maneuvers, because I think it's harder to look to square up to the larger consequences of those battles meant and, and continue to mean for this country. So certainly growing up in Gettysburg could have prompted me to do some more hard thinking about the Civil War and, and its meaning earlier. But I just didn't, you know, again, I, I growing up, I sort of thought that none of this really mattered anymore, that it was this sort of old, dusty history. And it didn't really come alive to me until these monument battles kicked off and I started following them. There is one thing that I noticed, of course, living in the South, hearing about reflections on the Civil War over time and that the lost cause reinterpreting the reasons for the Civil War being states' rights. But then if you actually look at the Articles of Secession from the states, I think all but one mentioned slavery in a very prominent way. Many politicians from the Confederacy said it was about slavery. Then after the end of Reconstruction, going into Jim Crow, you hear people talking about explicitly saying white supremacy, not even making any bones about it whatsoever. And that then you have people like the United Daughters of the Confederacy uh, trying to recast these things and uh, change the narrative as it is. And you kind of see a parallel nowadays in which prominent politicians will say something and then immediately people will try to reinterpret that and say, no, he didn't actually say what he said. He, he, he said something else, even though he very explicitly says one thing. 
That's right. Yeah, I think that is an interesting parallel. And I think in each of them, it's worth thinking about the outcomes and the, the consequences of those points of view and have it be less about trying to look into someone's heart and deciding, is this person a racist? Is what you just said racist? And instead, you know, looking at the outcomes of policies that they're advocating for. In the case of the Confederates, as you point out, they were making no bones about it at the time, but also just looking at playing out the idea of what might have happened if the South had won. There would have been an ethnostate in 13 former United States and, and, you know, territories pushing West into the frontier then too. So, you know, regardless of what the emphasis one might want to put on the, the bravery of any individual soldier or the, the tragedy of any soldier's death, if you play out the consequences of the policies that they were fighting for, it, it was clear that it was to establish it, an ethnostate. Likewise today, you know, you can wring your hands and, and fret and, you know, have the talking heads on cable news all night trying to weigh whether what Trump said was a, a dog whistle or, or whether what someone said was you know racist or not. But in, instead, look at the policies they're supporting and, and the outcomes of them, who stands to benefit from them and who stands to be punished, often violently, from those policies. And, and those are clearly breaking down along racial lines to this day. So yeah, I think that was one of the instructive things was to sort of reshape the framework for looking at these political debates is an emphasis on, on the policies and the outcomes and not whether one individual person in their heart of hearts is, is racist or not. In talking with the sociologists and historians that you mentioned throughout the course of the book, did any of them give you any indication beyond the obvious of why there are more Confederate monuments than monuments to soldiers from World War I to Korea, Vietnam, throughout the South? Yeah, I think one of the insights that I got is particularly to do with Forrest, He's an interesting case because he stands in contrast to someone like Robert E. Lee, the sort of epitome of the Southern gentleman coming from one of the first families of Virginia. You know, Forrest grows up on the frontier, you know, when, when <laughs> Western Tennessee was still thought of as the frontier, you know, didn't go to West Point, hardly went to school at all, enlisted in the, in the war as a private and became the most promoted soldier of the war, North or South but fought in the, in the Western theater, the less prominent theaters of the war. And, you know, Jefferson Davis had some accounting to do afterwards for why, you know, he didn't see Forrest's military genius earlier uh, and promote him or give him a more prominent role in the Civil War. And so Forrest, in the years since the war, increasingly is honored and revered and looked to because he exists as a sort of like Monday morning Confederate quarterback. If only he had been given a more prominent role, well, then the South would have won. And so there's a lot of teeth gnashing and, and saber rattling about the, you know, people avowing that the South will rise again. Forrest becomes the general that can embody that sort of, we're going to do it again, he'd be our guy. The famous literary figure, Andrew Nelson Lytle, has this biography of Forrest that it is really, its whole project is to prove that he could have won the war if, if he had been given this more prominent role. So all of this to say, to get back to your question, I think it's because this, the Civil War is the one that Southerners want to refight or want to continue fighting. The sort of South will rise again, you know, the profusion of secessionist groups that we've seen lately. They're interested in refighting this war because it's their identity that's at stake. The Vietnam War maybe, you know, put a dent in a, some people's idea of American exceptionalism, but not in the same way that the Civil War was a rebuke to Southerners' identity. So that's the one they're interested in, in refighting. And so that's why you get these monuments that go up, not in the years just after the war, but at the turn of the century as Jim Crow laws are being passed or in the middle of the 20th century as a sort of rebuke to the civil rights movement, these flashpoints where they are trying to reestablish or reify white supremacy as the organizing force of their towns, of their cities, of their states, of the region. 
So yeah, that's a long answer, I know. But I think that we have these monuments from this war because this is the war that people are interested in refighting. And forest, of course, is prominent in that. So that's why we get more markers of forest in Tennessee than of the three presidents from the state combined. Or even Sergeant York, who does have the VA hospital in Murfreesboro named after him. That's right. Yeah. Going back to that, you know, what is the policy? What is the real world consequence of all these things? And when people say, you know, the South would have won had Forrest been in, in charge, given that he had a tactical genius, but did he have a strategic genius? We will never know that. But why would you want the South to win? Why do you think that would be the better outcome of all that? Why do you think splitting the nation in two and creating a separate country on this continent was the preferred outcome of that? And I don't know why people would think that would be a positive thing. I certainly agree with that. Although the organizing structure of Southern life before the war and that organizing structure that they were interested in perpetuating by through secession had a very clear hierarchy that's sort of encoded into the very bones of that society. The justification for slavery was a belief in the inherent subhuman inferior nature of the people that they were enslaving. And they stood to benefit socially from that, of course, economically from that. It was just a very clear caste system. But now we've seen policies since then that are used to reassert that hierarchy and in more subtle, but just as violent ways, whether that be the war on drugs, mass incarceration, of course, Jim Crow before that, the state sanctioned racial terror lynchings that happened on average about once a week in the South from the end of Reconstruction to 1950. So, you know, America has other ways of, of perpetuating this racial hierarchy, but the slave system was, was the clearest way of establishing that. And, and that was the incentive for secession and for the war. So is it just a machismo that has brought up this kind of cult of forest in the 20th and 21st century? Machismo is certainly part of it. I mean, if you read or listen to Shelby Foote, famous Memphian, the historian and novelist, talk about Forrest, you certainly get a sense that part of what he admires about Forrest is his masculinity, his description of Forrest at Shiloh with his, you know, saber waving. And it's this sort of, you know, hagiography almost, a bit sexualized too, if I may. But yeah, I mean, I think, you know, that's why he's the mascot at the football games at, at Middle Tennessee State in the 1960s. That's why I think he's come to supplant Lee on Confederate t-shirts. Tony Horowitz in his great book, Confederates in the Attic, reported that in the 90s at Dixie Outfitters, they were selling five Forrest t-shirts to every one of Lee. And the, the really thoughtful historian, Court Carney, talks about how this sort of machismo and, and, and bloodlust vision of Southern identity helped forest stock rise over the course of the 20th century. So, so yeah, all of that to say, I, I think, I think machismo has a lot to do with it. This unwillingness to accept the outcome, the consequence of the war plays into it too. And that's the stuff you hear publicly. Although, you know, the stuff that you hear privately is more, you know, it's not irrelevant that he was the first Grand Wizard of the Klan. You know, they won't put that on the base of the statue, but that clearly has a role in, in shaping the meaning of these monuments and, you know, in the present day. And there seems to be quite a strong streak in America, and I'm sure in other countries as well, as the admiration of men that impose their will. And not necessarily in regards to whether it's good for the country or for any particular population inside a country, but just that sheer force of will seems to be intoxicating to some. 
Yeah, I think that's true. I recently heard from Twitter, from someone from New York, uh, actually, uh, funnily enough, I wasn't good enough to clean the general's boots, which <laughs> is a, a funny image as if that, you know, that was something I was interested in doing anyway. But yeah, I think there is that, there is this reverence from people that, you know, he's the, the sort of great man of history framework it certainly plays a part in it. Yeah, I take your point. I think, I think that probably plays into it too. Now, the next monument you look at is a building named after Forrest on the campus of Middle Tennessee State University in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. And it seems over the past 30 years or so, his legacy has been in retreat on that campus. Yeah, that's right. As one of the activists on campus described it, you know, for as long as that school has been integrated, for as long as there have been black students on campus, they've been protesting against the school's use of Confederate monuments. So it's been a slog. It's been 50 years, more than 50 years since the school was integrated. And they're, they're still fighting these battles about why the school deems it appropriate to revere Confederates in a school that's also claiming diversity and inclusion. But yeah, it's been a long struggle there at MTSU. And the fact that so many military installations around the South are named after Confederate officers is pretty ironic. Yeah, certainly ironic given the sort of traitorous nature of the Confederacy. But again, there's been great work pointing out the sort of use of those names as a way of intimidating black people in the area and in the military as well. So they're always wielded in a particular way, in a particular moment that, that's racially charged with a, with a clear intended audience. There is a statue on Interstate 65 headed up to Nashville that is a statue that a lot of opponents of Civil War monuments aren't in a hurry to take down. Right. It is heinous. I mean, it, it eludes description in some ways. Plenty of late night hosts have had their crack at it, and I think no one's quite done it justice. Yeah, it is comic how bad it is. I call it the sort of portrait of Dorian Gray of the Confederacy, that like it's the thing that is withering. <laughs> Say that bronze bust of Forrest a little further north in the state capital in Nashville, you know, stays handsome and prominent and, and shiny. But yeah, it's sort of a, a more honest reflection of what the Confederacy means, I think. It's so ugly. But yeah, people aren't in a hurry to take it down. They also can't take it down because it's on private land. And even when the city, you know, threatened to block the view of the statue from the roadside, uh, the guy that owns it, you know, had risers at the ready. He would lift it above any tree line that the, the city tried to impose to block the view. And it's ironic that the man who owns the property where the statue stands is blind and he doesn't have to look at the dang thing. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Lucky for him. Although I think, you know, there's a sort of trolling nature to that statue. The, the man who owns that land was good friends with the, the sculptor who's responsible for it, although the, the sculptor passed in, in 2010. But while they were still alive, you know, they would sit in lawn chairs and, and wave at the cars as they went by. So I think they got a big kick out of having this this ugly and racist statue on display for all the commuters coming into Nashville every morning. Now, Memphis was where Forrest made his money as a slave trader. And it was success in 2013 at renaming a park name for Forrest that led to making removing his monuments around the state more difficult to actually accomplish. That's right. The sort of backlash to that renaming required at first a majority of the state's historical commission to approve any change in, in public monuments. And then that was further strengthened a couple of years later as, as more protests broke out uh, to require a supermajority of the state historical commission, which then, you know, twice denied the city of Memphis's appeals to remove the statue of Forrest that stands in that park. Tammy Sawyer, a local politician, worked very hard and very long to get the statue removed. And it was an amazing time here in Memphis when that happened uh, because they had kept the plan secret so well that it was just 
fabulous when the news coverage broke in that they were moving the statues to other places. And the images from that removal are, are so powerful. Like you said, it, it was a surprise there in December of 2017 when the city did a sort of end run around that historical commission, selling the park that the forest statue was in to a, a county commissioner. When it was on private land, then it wasn't under the, the jurisdiction of the historical commission anymore. And so they took it down, you know, as soon as the ink was dry on that sale, the statue came down and, and the images from that from that night are, are so striking. The police cruisers that had closed the road, their, their blue lights flashing on this bronze statue that's, you know, being hoisted up by this crane hanging, swaying slowly in the night, bathed in this blue light, was really powerful. And then, you know, as you say, Tammy Sawyer there with her with her fist raised in triumph at having gotten this statue down. Yeah, an incredible night. You probably turned your manuscript in a year ago or maybe at just at the beginning of this year. Mm-hmm. And of course, the killing of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and, and many other African-Americans at the hands of people in power. There was another round of looking at this legacy and removing monuments in Richmond and and other cities across the South. Is there going to be an expansion for the paperback version uh, addressing these recent developments? Yeah, there might be. Yeah, it was certainly a a big summer (laughs) for the Confederate monument beat. We'll see. Yeah, I mean, I think there's still, there's some story left to play out, of course, and and things to say about Confederate monuments generally and and about a couple of forest monuments specifically. So I'm still following some stories. Yeah, that might serve as an addition to the paperback or just later feature style stories. We'll have to see what happens with these stories. But yeah, it it was strange. They had to really pull the manuscript out of my hands. We were doing, you know, copy editing last little formatting issues with the book this summer before it went to press, you know, the sort of drop dead date. They had to pull it out of my hands just because I'm like, oh yeah, you know, all right, we missed that comma there on page 111. Oh, and also I'm going to rewrite the ending one more time. <laughs> yeah. While I, I certainly didn't anticipate the summer that we had, I wasn't particularly surprised by it. I mean, we have these flashpoint moments, but it's always roiling under the surface because these central questions about racial inequity in this country are always there. And until we really square up to them and, and address them, we're bound to have seasons like we did this summer. And hopefully even if the book doesn't directly engage with the events of this summer, I think it speaks to the underlying tensions and the underlying conflicts that are making that happen. I've been working on this book for a long time, obviously. Part of the impulse for it was the Charleston Nine murders and the protests against monuments that happened in the wake of that. But, you know, I had a first draft of this book done before Charlottesville happened. (laughs) Of course, then that prompted a massive rewrite and an expansion of all of the drama of the Memphis section hadn't even happened yet. So there was more reporting, there was more research, there was more writing to do after that. And so the shape of the book has been rebuilt a couple of times, just given the sort of seismic events that that have happened over the course of, of writing it. <laughs> and, you know, I, that, that will probably continue to happen. And maybe the paperback will reflect some of those changes, or I'll just keep writing about Forrest and new projects too. We'll see. There's a word that does a lot of heavy lifting in the book, and that is palliative. That word first appears when I'm writing about Middle Tennessee State, a university that has long used Confederate symbols and, and, and symbols of forest specifically. And one of the earliest usages of, you know, Old South symbolism comes in a, a yearbook from 1930 that includes an image and an illustration of a, a clan lynching. And one of the professors who sort of hosted the debates that the school had about forest and the name of Forest Hall that I covered in the 2015-2016 school year when that protest movement was taking place, he 
wrote an essay laying out the school's history with Confederate images and symbols. And he attributed that illustration of the Klan lynching to its time period during the Great Depression and the sort of economic hardships that students were facing at that time in his interpretation led them to use images of the Old South as a palliative. And that really got me thinking, and particularly the use of that word, I thought that that was absolutely the right word, a sort of balm, you know, something that can address the main causes of the illness, but is meant to sort of soothe you. I just wanted to push further than, than he did. I thought there was something at work there deeper than just sort of economic uncertainty, and that it really was, we can read the use of Confederate symbols as a, a sort of racial palliative. And that comes from this idea that there's no bio biological truth about race. It was constructed. It, it was a thing that has been made. There's no sort of genetic connection that white people have <laughs> that distinguishes them from black people. They, these are social constructions. And, and if you look at the history as these ideas of whiteness and these ideas of race and, and the racial hierarchy that they're meant to impose, if you look at the history of it as they start to emerge in, in colonial America, they really are meant to be a palliative. The small cadre of, of men in charge in the colonies really had to stave off a kind of cross-racial labor revolt. You know, there were enslaved for life Africans and there were indentured Europeans who fought vastly outnumbered the, you know, the colonial governors and the, the landowners. And so as a way of staving off solidarity among the workers, as it were, they invented ways of giving these palliatives to the Europeans, this idea of whiteness as a inherently superior to the black enslaved people that they were living amongst. You know, so there are laws that get passed that offer minor advantages and a sense of psychological superiority to European Americans, chief among them, the ability to consider themselves white. So that idea of the palliative as being the real power of, of race, I thought was very insightful and, and, and useful in thinking about how these battles continue to play out and how race is used as a way of hoarding wealth and opportunity and access to resources. W.E.B. Du Bois talked about it as the wages of whiteness, that there's this sort of bond amongst the pale-skinned Americans and sort of will. There's no actual truth to our connection as white people, but we'll say there is so that we can keep the advantages of this society to ourselves. And that palliative, I think, has been a really useful framework for thinking about how race works in America. So yeah, so <laughs> to come back to your question, yeah, it comes up a lot because as soon as I encountered that word as it applied to Confederate symbols, I, I started to really understand in a deeper way how race works in America. Well, I typically hear the word in reference to hospice care, and mm. hopefully that will be its use here as well. I hope so. I hope so. I, you know, hopefully we can get beyond it and stop clinging to this hierarchy and, and find a way to find common cause and a collective will for policies that will make this country more equitable. Yeah, this idea of race can be put to bed. But, you know, there's always a backlash to that right there. You know, I think at this point, the Republican Party is entirely a party of white grievance. So we'll see. It's always it's always a push and pull. You teach at Auburn University in uh, central Alabama, and I can't imagine that there's going to be a whole lot of positive response from everyday white folks down that way. No, <laughs> no, I don't expect there will be. But I didn't write the book to be celebrated by the people who might be inclined to get angry about this book. So, you know, obviously, I hope people will read it. Even people who might be inclined to dismiss the point of view of this book will still give it a chance. I mean, that that was certainly a hope 
that I had while writing it. And it sort of led me to report the book in the way that I did, seeking out people on both sides and, and wanting to hear their points of view and trying to include their points of view in a, in a fair manner. And then put it in a larger context, put it in the, the context of this history, in the research that I was doing, these ideas of race in America that I was coming to understand. So yeah, I, I don't anticipate the warmest of receptions to the book, but I hope it will reach some people. I tried to trace my journey of coming to understand in a deeper way how how race shapes our lives in America. And I think more and more people are going on a similar journey these days in Alabama, just as, as much as they are anywhere else. So hopefully it will find some readers. But yeah, I, I, I take your point. It has brought some nasty Twitter DMs and emails, but I think that's par for the course. And you said you're continuing to report on these topics, but do you have another idea for a book? It's a good question. I think it's really at the initial stages right now. And sometimes writers can be superstitious people. <laughs> and sometimes talking about an idea before it's totally coalesced in your mind can sort of make it go cold on you. So I'm starting to do some research for some other projects, but I'm afraid that if I talk about them too much, the animating idea will lose its power. So yeah, more about forests to come and, you know, maybe a story that digs into more of the New England roots of my family and, and their experiences during the Salem witch trials. But that's maybe all I'll say about it. <laughs> well, Connor, I want to thank you so much. It's a fascinating read and thank you so much for adding to the conversation. Oh, this was great, Stephen. I really appreciate it. This was a, a really enjoyable conversation. Thanks for reading the book and, and really engaging with it. Connor Town O'Neill is the author of Down Along With That Devil's Bones, A Reckoning With Monuments, Memory, and the Legacy of White Supremacy, which is published by Algonquin Books. I'm Stephen Ussery, and this is Book Talk. Thank you for joining us today. Book Talk is recorded in the studios of WIPL in Memphis, Tennessee. If you have any questions or comments, you can email us at wiplfm at gmail.com or write to us at Book Talk, care of WIPL, 3030 Poplar Avenue, Memphis, Tennessee, 38111, or call us at 901-415-2752. This recording of Book Talk is licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivative Works 3.0 License for the United States. You are free to share, copy, distribute, or display and perform this work, but there are restrictions. Nothing in this license impairs or restricts WYPL's moral rights. Thank you for listening to Book Talk.